Ephesians chapter 1. And we're looking at 11 through 14 now. We've moved on. This wonderful passage, we're coming to the end of this great long 122 word run on sentence that Paul has sort of allowed to spill out of himself. And it is quite difficult to trace and to track all of the ideas. Oh, goodness. God bless you, sir. Thank you. All right, we're not bifocaling it today. So I don't have an excuse now if I do something stupid. All right, Ephesians chapter 1, starting in verse 11. In him, that is in Jesus, we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of of his will, so that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise his glory. Lord, we ask this morning that you would make your book live for us. We didn't come and gather together to hear a man speak and give thoughts or inspiration. We came to hear you. We came to worship you. We came to bow before you and say, Master, speak. Thy servant heareth, waiting on thy gracious word. And you are pleased when all works as it should to take the word of God preached by the man of God to the people of God in your house on your day and use it to do something supernatural. And that's all we've got to hang our hats on, Lord. That's all that we can hope for. And so we ask you to do that. Do what you've purposed to do and bring yourself great glory. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, sometimes it's helpful for a pastor to lay out sort of his presuppositions, his operating principles, in order to help people understand why he does the things he does and why maybe he doesn't do the things that he doesn't do that you might think he ought to do. And probably nowhere in his ministry is this more important than when dealing with the issues of the scriptures. How we view the scripture, how we understand the scripture, how we interpret the scripture, how we apply the scripture. These are issues of utmost importance. And so let me just today begin this passage, and you'll see why I'm doing this in a few minutes, hopefully. Let me begin our explorations of this passage by sharing with you and making explicit some of the principles which guide me. First of all, I want to assert, because this is what the scripture asserts about itself, ultimately, I want to assert that the scripture is inerrant. And what we mean by that is it is without error and it is without contradiction. And secondly, we can assert this because the scripture is inspired, inspired by God. That word inspired, we we think about inspirational and that which moves me or whatever, but that's not what the scriptures mean when they use the word 
inspired. To be inspired is uh, literally to be theotnustos in Greek. Literally, God breathed. We find this word, theotnustos, in 2 Timothy 3.16. All scripture is God breathed. All of it. Even the bits you don't want to read because they're boring or weird or you don't understand why they're relevant. All scripture is God-breathed and all scripture is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness. And what we mean by that is that God moved through a human author, specifically a prophet or apostle or somebody closely associated with apostle, like Dr. Luke, for instance, who wrote Luke and Acts. God moved through that person in order to transmit a timeless and universally relevant message through a human author. Now, sometimes we hear that, oh, we need to make the scriptures relevant. We need to make the scriptures relevant. No, the scriptures are relevant, always. We need to make people understand why the scriptures are relevant to them. So God's spirit worked through a human author to transmit this timeless and universally relevant message. But this human author was bound by time and by place. He had a culture. He had a language. He lived in a certain patch of the globe. And God conveyed that message through this person in such a way that the human author's personality and situation and culture and all that are present in the text itself, but they don't destroy or hinder the timeless universal nature of the message. And this is why we can profit from things written by a little fig picker from a town in Judah called Tekoa who went to the north and preached about the coming judgment of God on the northern kingdom. And we can profit from that today. That's the book of Amos. This fact leads us to another special word, which you probably will never hear again, and I'll say it today. It's perspicuous. Everybody say perspicuous. Perspicuous, right. That's the last time you'll probably ever use that word, unless you're like on Jeopardy or something. We say that the scripture has perspicuity. That word literally means it has see-throughableness. Scripture can be understood, at least in a basic way, through ordinary means and ordinary gifting. Its basic message is available to people who can read or listen and think in an ordinary way. You don't have to be super smart. You don't have to be super educated. You don't have to be initiated into some secret society with secret knowledge to understand the basic message of the Bible. So even an unbeliever can understand the words on the page. However, saving knowledge and saving belief in the scriptures and in their message requires something besides natural ability. It requires the supernatural presence and power of the Holy Spirit in the reader. So when you read your Bible and it seems dry and dull to you and you can't make heads or tails of it, 
and you can't feel like you're getting anything out of it. What you need is not to study harder. What you need is to pray yourself hotter and ask the Spirit to come and open your eyes and put things in front of you that speak to the inward man. Thirdly, we assert about Scripture, once again, what Scripture asserts about itself, that it is living, it's alive, and it's active. You know, when I was uh, back in 2001, 2000, when I lived in in Cincinnati before we moved to Sturgis, I, I worked for a while at this shop that repaired uh, BMWs. It was kind of a specialty shop and repairing BMWs, and I had bought an old BMW just to have something to do and fixed it up, and it kind of impressed the guy that, that uh, ran the shop, and he hired me. And I used to sit at lunch, and I had this little Bible, and I'd read the Bible. And one of the mechanics there had been born in Armenia in the Soviet Union, and he had been in the Soviet Army. and He was a missile officer in the Soviet Army, and now after the fall of the Berlin Wall and all the crumbling of communism for a while. Then he, um, he came to the United States and he became a BMW mechanic. And he was a pretty good ranch, really. And so but he'd been raised in atheism his whole life. And he would see me reading this little book and he'd say, how many times have you read the Bible? And I'd say, oh, I don't know, over and over again. Why do you keep reading it? I mean, you, I don't read a novel over and over again. Why do you keep reading that little book over and over again? And I had to explain to him that this book was different than all the other books. It was alive. And it spoke to me in my hour of need about things I needed to know, things I didn't even know I needed to know that the Lord would bring up as I read the scriptures. Because the scriptures are alive. They're active. The scriptures are God's appointed tool for humbling and converting the sinner. God's word says about itself that his word is a hammer and it breaks the rock. It's tough stuff. It's his appointed tool for rebuking the errant saint and for strengthening and for comforting the weak Christian. Someone once asked Charles Spurgeon one time how he defended the authority of the Bible in the face of all the skepticism and the liberal biblical criticism which had begun to sway the church in his day. And Spurgeon looked at him and said, I don't defend the Bible. You don't defend a lion. You just let the lion out of its cage and the lion defends itself. And the scripture is like a lion. It's interesting, isn't it, that when Jesus tells the parable of Lazarus and the rich man, and he gets to the part about the rich man in hell, in agony, begging Abraham to send Lazarus to his brothers, who are still alive, to warn them that they need to do something different or they're going to end up in this horrible place with him. And he wants Abraham to send Lazarus to warn them about this place. And Abraham says, they have Moses and the prophets. Let your brothers listen to them. And the rich man says, no, Father Abraham, they they don't believe Moses and the prophets, but if someone comes back from the dead, that will convince them. And Abraham says, if they don't believe Moses and the prophets, neither will they believe when someone rises from the dead. 
Now, one of the things that that means, one of the things that Jesus is telling us there in that passage is that the confidence of heaven is in the Bible. That God himself says, no, my Bible, my word, that's my tool for bringing about my purposes in this world. You know, it's not publicity stunts, marketing plans, advertising. It's not the manipulation of emotions by various techniques. It's not trying to be funny or relevant or entertaining. Or it's not in any way in which the world actually tries to use its tools of persuasion upon us that the church is to, is to act. God just wants me to preach the Bible. He wants me to just preach the Bible, just talk about the Bible. A number of years ago, at the beginning of my ministry, I heard a quote from a Scottish theologian named James Denny, and it always stuck with me. James Denny said, no man can simultaneously prove that he himself is clever and that Christ is mighty to save. And I've got to confess to you, there was a lot of things I did early in the ministry in the pulpit that was designed to draw attention to me, that was designed to put the focus of attention on me, to steal, as it were, a little bit of God's glory for myself. Aren't I clever? Aren't I funny? Aren't I this? Aren't I that? Aren't I pleasing? Aren't I stern? Aren't I impressive? And God was just like, don't do that. It was at Alistair Begg's pastor's conference in 2001 that I heard that. And I was just undone. I had to go back to my room and get on my knees and cry. And I, I was stealing God's glory for myself. And I say that to my shame. Finally, we can say about the scriptures that the scriptures are clear in the main things. That's true. And as Alistair Begg says, the main things are the plain things, and the plain things are the main things. But we are also called to progress from a diet of milk to a diet of meat. We're told to grow up in all things into him who is the head. Paul prays for his readers later on in chapter 1 of Ephesians that his readers would be given a spirit of wisdom a spirit of revelation, a spirit of knowledge, and that he, they would have the eyes of their hearts progressively enlightened. And that only occurs with a deep study and deep living interaction with the Word of God over time. And when we enter into that deep study of God's Word, inevitably we discover that what Peter says in 2 Peter 3.16 is correct, that there are things in Scripture that are hard to understand. Peter says there are things in Scripture which ignorant and unstable people distort to their own destruction and to the destruction of those who hear them. And we must answer, if we're going to be faithful, we must answer those distortions. And we must warn the people who are in danger of being swayed by them. Now, one of the things that makes this more difficult is that Christians are very suspicious often, especially here in America, are very suspicious 
of attempts to unravel the hard things. They're very suspicious of attempts at using a process of reasoning from first principles. They think that they are practicing the virtue of humility if they try and believe two ideas in the scriptures that they think contradict each other. They think it's impossible to resolve lots of things in the Bible and that it's a bad idea to try. Sometimes they'll even try to assert that ignorance is a sure sign of intelligence and humility. But I want to say to you, it's a bad idea not to try and figure those things out and to go deep and to study hard and to think carefully. Let me just give you one example of where this could be of critical importance to the eternal salvation or damnation of a soul. Let me just give you one. In in, uh, Romans chapter 4, Paul is talking about Abraham, and he's specifically talking about the doctrine of justification by faith alone, not by works. He said, how how was Abraham justified? How was he declared righteous? Abraham believed God. And it was credited to him as righteousness. And we all as evangelical Protestants would go, yep, yep. Salvation is by grace through faith, not by works. Then you turn over to James chapter 2. And James says, what do you mean justification is by faith? Abraham was justified by works when he offered up Isaac on the altar. Faith without works is dead. And so here we have this apparent contradiction. Are we justified by faith or are we justified by works? We got to know. We got to figure this out. Eternity's on the line. How do you know? Well, you know by thinking carefully and comparing Scripture with Scripture. We know that the Scripture is without error and without contradiction. So we've got to figure out how to take these two statements. And by a process of examining all of the things that Scripture says on this issue, come to a conclusion that harmonizes and reconciles two things which appear to contradict each other. It does you no good to say, they're both true. You have to say, in what sense they're both true. So why should we engage in this process of reasoning? Well, ultimately, because God told us to. He told us that all scripture is God-breathed. He told us it's all profitable to us. He's told us that we have, as Christians, a deeper wisdom to which we should aspire. He told us to grow up. He told us to eat meat. He told us that he has secret things that belong only to the Lord our God. But he also said there are things that are revealed that belong to us and our children after us. So there are two principles, there are two bedrocks when we approach these hard things, these apparent contradictions, these uncertainties about the best way to translate a passage or interpret the passage we've translated. And the first principle is that Scripture interprets Scripture that the Bible is self-interpreting, that we take what is clear in the scripture and use it to help us understand what is unclear. And the second principle is that reason and logic 
are valid tools in that endeavor. And furthermore, we would say, if reason and logic are fully and rightly applied to all of the scriptural data and a conclusion or a range of conclusions, possible conclusions are reached, then those conclusions are true and valid and we ought to act as though they are true and valid and we ought to believe them, have confidence in them and live accordingly. And as a corollary, this process of reasoning on the scriptures has been going on in the Christian church since the earliest days of Christianity and most of it is still available to us. And so we need not, indeed we must not, only rely on people in our own day and what they have said. It is far better to see that we are just a momentary part of this great conversation about the Lord Jesus and about the Bible that speaks of him. This conversation has been going on for 2,000 years, for 20 centuries, and many good ideas have been clarified and they've been sharpened. And they've won widespread or even universal approval. And many bad ideas have been heard. And they've been examined. They've been discussed thoroughly. And they've been rejected, not just once, but over and over again for 20 centuries. And ignorant men and women who know nothing of that conversation keep coming up with these bad ideas and thinking, oh, I've discovered some new thing that nobody's ever thought of before. I am brilliant. And it's like, no. In reality, you've just thought up some 1,700-year-old error that's been refuted four or five different times and different places in Christian history. You see, there's only so many ways to go wrong. There's only so many ways a thing can break. There's only so many ways you can screw a thing up. And we've been trying to screw up the Christian thing for 2,000 years. And so we've explored all those ways. We know what they are. If we want to know, we can know. Let me give you some examples of ideas that have won universal approval that are the result of this kind of thinking. The doctrine of the Trinity. You you don't find the word Trinity anywhere in the Bible. You don't find the word um, homoousios, one substance. You don't find the word consubstantial, co-eternal. Um, you don't find any of those words in the Bible. Those are human words. But what happened? The church over periods of decades and even centuries got together and they looked at the Bible and they looked at all the relevant passages and they compared them together and said, these are the conclusions that we reach. And now we're going to share those conclusions with you and we're going to tell you how we got to them. We're going to show you our notes, so to speak. And you're free to examine our notes, you're free to examine our arguments and our scripture references and decide for yourself. It's all out in the open for you to look at. But when Brother Earl at 33rd Apostolic Tabernacle of Holiness and Cheese Curls tells you that he doesn't need a confession... He doesn't need a catechism. He doesn't need any human document because he's a Bible-only man. Then please rest assured that he's doing exactly what a confession or a catechism does. He's just not being transparent with you about it. And he's not submitting his reasoning and his Bible verses to the public so that it can be examined carefully because he hasn't thought deeply enough to even begin to do that. Even churches that don't have 
an official creed like we do or a confession like we do will have a statement of beliefs on their webpage. What is that statement of beliefs? It's just a mini creed. It's a mini confession of faith. It's just not that well thought out. People haven't had time to ask questions about, well, what does this mean and what are the implications of that? Now, why have I chosen to lay all of this out before you? Well, two reasons. First of all, I'm trying to answer some concerns and some objections uh, and some, th- some thoughts that have arisen over the past year and a half or so as I've been here. People asking questions about why we do the things we do, why I do the things I do. But also because we have a small example of many of the things that I've mentioned above in today's passage. And I want to show you how all of this works. I want to kind of reason together with you transparently over the process of the rest of this sermon and then next week. When we look at Ephesians 1.11 in, uh, in the English Standard Version, the ESV, it reads, In him we have obtained an inheritance. And most other modern versions read more or less exactly that way. But there's a problem. It's a problem that's not apparent in English, but it is apparent in the Greek. The phrase, we have obtained an inheritance, that's five words in English. It's only one word in Greek. And that Greek word can be used to describe both receiving an inheritance from somebody or giving an inheritance to somebody. So it can be about me getting something or about me passing something off to someone else. And because of the grammar of the verb in Greek, the most natural way to translate it would be not we have obtained an inheritance, but rather we have been given as an inheritance. Now that's a huge difference. That's an important difference. Either we ourselves are being given something of amazing value, because you, you, that's what an inheritance is, right? It's valuable. Nobody, nobody gets together after dad dies and to read the will to discover that I have been given five pebbles from the garden and a bucket of mud, right? No, nobody, nobody passes things like that on. They pass valuable things on. So either I'm being given something valuable, and you are too, or else you and I are the valuable thing that is being given. And the most natural translation is that you and I are the valuable thing that's being given to somebody. So why do most versions translate it as though we're the ones who are being given something? Well, because a few verses later in verse 14, Paul says that we've been given the Holy Spirit as a down payment, as a guarantee of our inheritance, which is clearly something God is giving to us there in that verse. And it's hard to see how, how the logic of the passage flows if we're the gift in verse 11 and then we're receiving the gift in verse 14. So what do we do? How do we begin to solve this little problem and thereby come to a more accurate understanding of our glorious God and of our merciful Savior and of our breathtaking privilege as children of God? Well, let's start by comparing Scripture with Scripture. 
Maybe the clear things in Scripture will help us understand this, which is unclear right now. So does the Bible ever talk about us being a people who are receiving an inheritance from God? And the answer is yes. Yes, it does. It does in many places. I just mentioned Ephesians 1.14 is one of them. There are others. Probably the most famous would be in the book of Hebrews in chapter 9. And in Hebrews chapter 9, the writer to the Hebrews is in the middle of a complicated argument where he makes the point that an inheritance is just a theoretical possibility for us until the person who possesses it dies. And then only after they die can we inherit something. So it belongs to them until they die, and then it's passed on to us legally. And the eternal life that was Jesus' possession by right could only be passed on to us as an inheritance, which is ours by right, if the seemingly impossible happened. We could only inherit eternal life from the ever-living one if the ever-living one died. But by definition, an ever-living one, one who has life in himself as opposed to one who's given life by another, that person cannot die. So how's God going to do this? How is God going to make the ever-living one die so that he can pass on the inheritance of life to a people? And in the wisdom and in the power and in the plan of Almighty God, that ever-living one did die. He died a real death in a real body. He spilled real blood, a real heart stopped beating, real lungs stopped breathing, electrical activity ceased in a real brain. And he stayed dead. He stayed dead long enough to put to rest any notion that he had only come close to dying, but hadn't actually died. And then, what happened? Well, death, says the writer to the Hebrews, couldn't hold him. Why couldn't death hold him? Well, because death is a result of sin. Death is the wages of sin, and he was without sin. But because he had died a real death, he could then pass on to us that real inheritance, eternal life. And that's just what he did. So maybe it's, it's right to translate that funny word, like the ESV has done it, that we have received an inheritance. But you know what? The Bible doesn't only talk about what God gives us as an inheritance. The Bible also talks about God himself as our inheritance. In Leviticus, for instance, he tells the priests that he's not giving them any land like he's giving to the other tribes because he himself will be their inheritance. He tells Abraham in Genesis 15, I am your shield and defender, your very great reward. The word reward could also be translated inheritance in Hebrew. And there are many other passages like that. And there's an important point here. We tend to think of hell as the torture chamber and of heaven as the pleasure factory. And we can think that we want to go to heaven because we think we want to just go someplace nice, when in actuality, we don't want God 
at all. We tend to think of Jesus very often like the guy at the ticket booth at Disneyland where you have to deal with him in order to get into Disneyland and then you never have to deal with him again because what you're really interested in is not the guy in the ticket booth but the ticket that gets you in to Fantasyland. You're interested in the roller coasters and the funnel cakes and whatever else it is they sell. No. Jesus is the point of heaven. Living with him is the point of eternal life. Knowing him better and being with him is heaven. If you don't want to grow closer to Jesus here on earth, what in the world makes you think you'd want to go to heaven? If you're trying to avoid him down here, you might be able to succeed for a little while. But when you get up there, you can't avoid him. You can't hide. You can't ghost him on your cell phone. Because he's there in glory and majesty everywhere. That's why um, it's really silly to talk about eternal life as simply going to heaven. The gospel offer is not, is not come to Christ and receive heaven. The gospel offer is come to Christ and receive Christ. To submerge your broken and selfish and weak and miserable little life into his great, powerful, strong, holy, eternal life. And in doing so, to begin to live for the first time and to live forever. That's why the whole lordship salvation debate would be laughable if it weren't so grotesque. The idea that you can take Jesus as your savior and get your fire insurance, as I heard one guy say it, and then later on decide, hey, maybe I'd like to take you as my lord and start following you and obeying you. But, you know, maybe not. And it's not necessary. It's, it's optional. All you got to do is get your fire insurance and then you can go to heaven. No. You must receive the whole Christ or you receive nothing at all. You can't separate Christ and his benefits. And if eternal life was peddled to you on the basis of getting your fire insurance and maybe you can decide to obey him later, then you are still in your sins and you need to receive Christ. Well, it would seem that we've solved our problem then. Christ is our inheritance, eternity is our inheritance, and so the translators must be correct. But not so fast. There are also many passages in Scripture, and Dan read some of them this morning in the call to worship, which teach that God's people are his inheritance. That we ourselves are a gift that God gives himself. Now, we're not going to try and unpack that today. Next week, if the Lord spares us, we'll look into these things again together, and then we will talk about what it means to be sealed with the Holy Spirit have him as a guarantee and a deposit what it means to live as though the holy spirit was in us because he is father we ask that you would be kind to us this morning we ask that you would write these things on our hearts if i have said anything this morning that is unhelpful or untrue i pray that you would cause it to be forgotten but if i have spoken truth from the very lips of god then cause it to be burned on our hearts forever and cause it to change the way we live 
the way we look at things. In your name we pray. Amen.